Anything that has survived for 150 years should inspire in every new generation a fierce desire to protect it. Morgan State University hasn't remained viable and growing for a century and a half by happenstance. It survived because of the fighting spirit and foresight of faculty, administrators, current students, and scores of dedicated alumni. By the 1960s, Morgan State University had become the foremost historically black college or university in the state of Maryland. Known as a hub of civil rights activism, an incubator for professional and semi-professional football players, and a top-notch proving ground for aspiring black academics, Morgan was doing the city of Baltimore with its considerable number of middle-class African-American residents proud. As with most of the city's once thriving black institutions, however, desegregation reconfigured the still unlevel playing field. Black students had far more options than they'd previously been afforded. And though Morgan was still attractive, its visionary administrators and alumni knew that longer term measures would need to be taken to keep the school competitive. In the late 1970s, Morgan launched a black FM community radio station at the time, the only of its kind. It created and grew several new departments, including its engineering and architecture disciplines, built new capital facilities, gradually replacing the outdated and deteriorating ones, and began sending enough students to study abroad to earn a distinction as the first among all HBCUs in Fulbright scholarships. In the 21st century, the long arc of reinvention is bending towards spectacular progress, with innovative marine, meteorological, engineering, and architecture programs bursting onto the scene. Morgan intends to become a prominent urban public research university in the state of Maryland. Considering America's fraught history with research in African-American communities, it's no small thing for an HBCU to seize the research reins and set the parameters of experiments. But then, Morgan has never been a place that set its sight on small things. Morgan, as you'll discover over the course of this episode, aims for the stratosphere. I'm Stacia Brown, and this is The Rise of Charm City, Episode 14, A Modern Study of Morganic Chemistry. Even with a second half hour to cover the 150-year history of Morgan State University, we couldn't possibly cover everything noteworthy. Instead, we thought we'd take a few minutes just listening not to interviews about the university, but simply listening to the university. The Rise of Charm City has spent the last six weeks doing just that, walking the grounds, attending sesquicentennial events, and attempting to immerse ourselves in the Morgan experience. This is a bit of what we heard. This is what Morgan sounds like. Instead of going to class, students would hang out on the bridge. If you wanted to find a significant other, 
he went and hung out on the bridge. If you wanted to meet up with your friends and catch the party bus, you met up on the bridge. If there was an event that you wanted everybody to know about, you hung your flyers on the bridge. If you want a good view of the Omegas stepping at homecoming, go stand on the bridge. Alumni, if you want to see your old classmates on homecoming day, where do you go? You go to the bridge. show the people a little something. Morgan's one big family, so it's kind of like when you need help, help is there. You just have to ask for it. But everybody's nice and it's cool. Like it's, it, I really recommend for anybody who's trying to get out of their shell to come to Morgan because you really get out of your shell. You have to talk and stuff, so it's good. My first impression was just it kind of felt like home because I've been like here for years because my dad works here, so it's just it really did feel like home coming here. I love it. There's, I couldn't imagine being in any other place. I'm thankful for WEAA every day, because if it weren't for WEAA, April Ryan would not be April Ryan. Well, at the White House. I'd still be April Ryan, but not, but not April Ryan at the White House. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little bit of an introduction to April Ryan, White House correspondent extraordinaire. Tonight we are here to celebrate her. And being someone who grew up on Morgan's campus, a Morgan baby, being someone whose mother toiled here, being a second generation graduate, and my brother's a graduate of Morgan and my friends are graduates of Morgan, I said, okay, let me see. This was, this was real news, but it was personal too. I was told early on that it was smoke and mirrors. I was saying, I said, look, this is what's going on. They're gonna take the HBCU initiative out of the Department of Education, put it up under the purview of the White House, and my Republican friends were telling me, oh, they did this during the Reagan years. It was in the vice president's office. Okay, fine. So it's going to put a spotlight on it. But you never heard anything about new money. No money. So what happened? The president said, we don't want to go in here for a photo op. We want something to happen because HBCUs are hurting. God, I ask you to empower us today, to uplift us, and to remind us that as we transcend, as we rise above and go beyond the limits that have been placed upon us as women and as African-American women, that not only will our lives be changed, but we will successfully impact the generations to come. Thank you for Morgan State University and this opportunity to learn, grow, and to be inspired. It is in your holy name I pray. Amen. Morgan has always been an institution that has looked for ways to distinguish itself from others like it. 
One of its most familiar and successful means for doing so has been the founding of its radio station in 1977. Celebrating its 40th anniversary in 2017, WEAA is what Ezekiel in Old Testament scripture might call a wheel in the middle of a wheel. It's an institution within the institution. Can you describe how you became the first program director at WEAA? <laughs> there was nobody else. <laughs> this is Morgan alumnus and current Morgan Board of Regents Chairman Kwaisian Fume, who you may recall from our last episode as having enrolled at Morgan following an adolescence disrupted by tragedy and setbacks. Founding the radio station was an extension of his interest in civic and political engagement, as well as his investment in a long-standing, good-natured rivalry with another area HBCU. Howard University had already come on the air, and so uh, out of a sense of genuine competitiveness, we just felt that we were not going to be a college or university that was second to anybody, and so we wanted the radio station at least to sort of even up the uh, the playing field. Morgan and Howard were very competitive in a number of different ways, on and off the football field and everywhere else. This was our effort to sort of catch the university back up, if you know what I mean. Founded in 1971, WHUR was a 24-hour FM commercial station. When WHUR started, I guess in the early 70s, it was just a hallmark for what we call FM broadcasting because that was a different flavor then. And we went over to WHUR at Howard to just see how it was run. They took us over there. And it was very interesting to see what they could do. Now, they were primarily commercial, so they did have some restraints. Reverend Dr. Dabai Sababu Thomas was an early adopter of the WEAA vision. We could see how music could be programmed to bring forth a message. The idea of programming songs to bring forth a message was not something that was done at that time. Dubai Sababu Thomas, myself, a guy by the name of Tipper, Al Stewart, who was not a student, and Doris Hawks, who was not a student, they were Morgan employees, we all got this idea that we should have a radio station. And Dubai and I, and a, another person by the name of Isis Bay, when I was in my junior year, started petitioning the FCC to grant a license to Morgan. Reverend Debaye recalls her initial motivation for joining the cause as a social enterprise. Believe it or not, one day I was walking across the campus, minding my own business, and this young man that I had kind of liked, seen at a couple of parties, never made any contact, called me. He said, Debaye, come here. And I thought he was going to ask me out for a date. But he said, I'm getting ready to go to a meeting about students helping to start a radio station. So my heart dropped because it wasn't a date, but my heart grew stronger because it was a radio station that we would be having. So I went to the meeting and just fell in love with the vision and the idea of us starting our own radio station. I never saw that young man again, but that was all right. He led me to a place where my life would be changed. Chairman Infume says that obtaining licensing marked a major cleared hurdle, but it was only the first of a few. 
the next would be getting the whole operation up and running. So we got the license and we got the uh, call letters. <laughs> and we had to figure out what do we do to buy equipment, to put up a tower and, and all the other things that go with broadcasting on an FM frequency. One of the earliest daily programs on WEAA was a program called Sunrise Serenade. I would do the music. We had a chief engineer on staff. And then Lamont Germany, who is the voice of Morgan State University for the football games, was my sports person. And so we were a two-man, three-man band. No, one woman, two-men band. And we did that for quite a while until they were able to bring in other staff. They were as instrumental in this as anybody, because if if we were not together and stayed together, I don't know if it would have come to pass the way it did, but we were a tight group, and we believed in each other, and we believed in this notion of getting a radio station. I threw the switch. We came on the air. I announced the station, announced its presence. I think the only people listening at the time were the 10 people in the control room, because nobody knew where we were on the dial. Reverend Abaye says being a team player in those days often meant making sacrifices, like sleep, for instance. She wasn't a morning person and sometimes had to come up with clever ways to mask her early morning sleepiness. One of them I really loved, it was a jazz song by uh, Freddie Hubbard. It was called First Light, and it was a long song. And what I would do, nobody knew this, I would put it on, when I would come in, it was about seven or eight minutes long. And that's when I would kind of sleep for about five or so minutes, get myself together. And it starts out really slow as if the sun is coming up. And we go, and then around about minute four or five, it would jump into it. By that time, I'd be ready for the day. She says that community feedback came from unlikely places. What really surprised me was the population of people in prisons or in hospitals. I was not expecting that. I was expecting students, and I was expecting, you know, the regular people that you went to parties with or you went to class with. But when I would get a lot of feedback from the the prison systems, and the men and the women there were really touched because it seemed to be, our music seemed to be inclusive. first time I got invited to the prisons and I had only seen a little bit of it on television and I had to go through the, the, the lockup and the lockdown and what was so funny was for some reason they didn't think I was who I was because I have a heavy voice especially early in the morning but when I would come and I would be this young 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, this young girl in her 20s who, who was quasi fly but very sensitive it shocked them Reverend Abai says the experience was an eye-opening one for her as well. And it shocked me that so many brothers who look like people that I knew every day, that I went to school with, were there. And the women looked just like me and my classmates. One of the letters from one of the prisoners said, thank you for what you're doing. I'm getting emotional about this. And he said, I thank you for what you're doing. 
and know that you are making an impact in the lives of others. And then this is what he said. He said, the best way of reaching the world is by reaching the one person at a time. That was the first time I'd heard that. You've been listening to The Rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. By now you know quite a bit about the founding history of Maryland's oldest and largest HBCU. Now it's time for a glimpse into Morgan State University's future. We spoke with University President Dr. David Wilson, who joined the Morgan family nearly seven years ago, in July of 2010, about some of the progress he's overseen during his tenure, as well as his plans for the next era of the institution. Uh, We are continuing um, a great renaissance and rebirth here at Morgan. It started um, with capital facilities. I'm very, very pleased with our new business school that we opened last year. I'm pleased with the new behavioral and social sciences building that we will open in May. And I'm looking forward to um, this uh, $82 million building that we'll break ground on in about four or five months uh, that will house many of our student service operations. And so I am really appreciative of the continual expansion of Morgan to replace some buildings on the campus that should have been raised uh, decades and decades ago uh, with modern facilities. He says that the rapid growth of the university's international student population which hovered around 2 to 3% when he started here and now accounts for 9 to 10% of the population, is also something he expects to continue. That's close to uh, 900 students representing over 70 countries. We have promoted study abroad opportunities here quite vigorously. And so as a result, we have students now who are going to China and going to Brazil and going to Italy and you know Spain and places like that. And they're having great experiences that are enabling them to expand what they are learning in the classroom. We asked if he had concerns that someday Morgan might have more non-black students than black students. In other words, and this seemed a silly question even as I was asking it, but is there such a thing as too much diversity at an historically black college or university? Is it still a black college contemporarily, not just historically, if fewer black students attend it? Uh, Morgan State University has uh, never discriminated against any applicant here since it opened based on race, and we never will. And so unlike the majority of institutions that came into existence in America, they did. They did discriminate against individuals based on race. We grew up in a space that has been defined as And historically, black college just means that historically that was really how the institution was defined. It was never a statement about who exclusively the institution would serve. But over a period of time, uh, certainly there are cultural norms that have grown up uh, around the institution. uh, And we are very, very proud of those uh, in the same way as cultural norms have grown up around Notre Dame being an institution that is rooted in the uh, Irish and and Catholic faith, Um, just as those norms have grown up around Brandeis um, and Yeshiva University. And so it doesn't mean that those institutions are going to lose that special cultural 
you know, space, if you will. But students who come here from all walks of life will certainly have an opportunity to learn more about a culture that perhaps they have not learned about before. Morgan's student population may very well be trending toward greater ethnic and racial diversity. But as Dr. Wilson notes, there are historical and cultural traditions that set Morgan apart from traditionally white institutions in the area. Protecting not just those traditions, but the new and distinct academic programs and classifications the university has worked so hard to develop over the past few decades has become the focus of a legal battle Morgan and other local HBCUs have been working to resolve for over 10 years. The lawsuit predated my arrival as president. Um, The alumni of Morgan Coppin, the University of Maryland Eastern Shore in Bowie, filed this case in 2006, and so it's been around for 11 years. However, the case was heard initially when I arrived here at Morgan. And so the trial, the initial trial, uh, opened in January 2012. The short version of the HBCU equality lawsuit is that a coalition of representatives from Maryland's historically black colleges and universities asserted that the Maryland Higher Education Commission and other higher ed entities had denied funding and opportunities to HBCUs that other area predominantly white universities had been afforded. To add insult to injury, the state chose to open new predominantly white institutions like the University of Maryland Baltimore County, or UMBC, and Towson University, and to invest in those. The disproportionately high investments in those newer schools made them direct enrollment competition for HBCUs like Morgan. And academic programs emerging at those newer institutions bore striking resemblance to the programs Morgan had worked so hard to establish and grow on a comparatively minuscule budget for decades. In October 2013, the Afro-American newspaper reported that District Court Judge Catherine C. Blake ruled in favor of the HBCU coalition, saying, quote, Maryland had violated the U.S. Constitution by perpetuating a segregated higher education system through the practice of program duplication, end quote. Students decided correctly that they were not going to become a part of the University of Maryland system, that Morgan would remain independent, even though the state legislature was threatening to deny funding and to close the institution down. And students and the community and myself and others, we just all continued to descend on Annapolis to make the point that Morgan is special and Morgan is not going to be a part of the University of Maryland, so much so that we ultimately won that battle. And many years later now, uh, there are only, there's only one other institution in the state with its own uh, board of regents, that's St. Mary's College, because they felt the same way. Everything else has been swallowed up by the University of Maryland. And uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but for Morgan, it was not going to be a good thing. Uh, we did not want to lose our independence in terms of how we operated and how we were, were governed. I think we have a long way to go in Maryland to close the funding disparity between institutions that are historically black institutions and traditionally white institutions. I am hopeful that the coalition case that is now winding down, it's in the remedy phase, will result in a ruling that will bring additional resources our way and will close that gap immeasurably. Uh, But over decades and decades and decades, the evidence is there that there is a wide gap 
between the funding coming to HBCUs and the funding coming to other campuses. Dr. Wilson also expressed a great deal of excitement about a number of research programs for which Morgan has received funding in the past seven years. So we headed over to the Office of Research and Development to find out more about those. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. I am Victor R. McCrary. I am the Vice President for Research and Economic Development. I'm probably the Chief Research Officer and the person who tries to bring everything together under research, kind of uh, chief innovator, chief troublemaker, chief exciter. Dr. McCrary told us about a number of Morgan's environmental research programs and the exciting new strides being made by the students involved. First up was an aquaculture research initiative on the Patuxent River. The Patuxent Environmental and Aquatic Research Laboratory, or acronym PEARL, because we actually grow oysters down there. And about two years ago, we got a grant from the state to actually restart the oyster hatchery around the turn of the 20th century, so around 1900. Chesapeake Bay yielded somewhere like 19 million bushels of oysters. A couple years ago, we got less than 50,000. Right now, uh, we're even looking at the possibility of developing our own Morgan oyster. So an oyster that is uh, disease tolerant and changes with taste in terms of the salinity within the bay. Dr. McCrary says that Pearl also hosts 400 to 600 Maryland high school students each year, teaching them the importance of aquaculture preservation. You really got to understand that if you stop up the sewers here on York Road, it has an effect down there on the bay, and the bay is the livelihood of Maryland. Water isn't the only elemental area of study to which Morgan students and faculty are paying special attention. They're also focusing on air, meteorology in particular. We have on order of 25 to 30 Morgan researchers down at Goddard Space Flight Center actually doing atmospheric modeling and climate-based research. Also what has happened is we have students who go down there and work alongside these researchers. They get to understand NASA. They get to understand its mission. They get to do a little bit of research, and when they come back, hopefully they get that research bug. Dr. McCrary says that Morgan is also steering its students in the direction of biomedical research. Another emerging uh, program that we've had is the ASCEND program that's led by Dr. Farron Kamengar. This was a program that started out from NIH, National Institutes of Health, when they were recognized that they needed to create a pipeline for institutions of getting more underrepresented minorities in biomedical research. Dr. Kamengar and his team put together a winning proposal, $24.3 million, was awarded in 2015. It's for five years, and if we do well, we do another five years. Dr. McCrary and the rest of the research and development team intend for these programs and others like it to position Morgan as an essential facility for finding solutions to some of society's most pressing urban environmental challenges, including rapid population growth, food safety, cybersecurity, and public health. Morgan is going to become Maryland's public urban research university. The significance and the irony of an historically black university having the potential to become a premier and pioneering public research hub in Baltimore were not lost on me as I listened to Dr. McCrary. He told us that now Morgan has a strong, promising academic relationship with Johns Hopkins University. I'm sure that like me, some listeners will hear Johns Hopkins and research and think of the hospital and of Henrietta Lacks 
and of the hospital surreptitious use of her cells for research for many, many years without her or her family's consent. Black communities in America have long been exploited by this country's foremost biomedical research institutions, a reality Dr. McCrary cites as one of the most important reasons for Morgan's prioritizing research in the 21st century. It's really good to make sure that we have folks who understand research because, you know, as I always say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. This episode was produced by Allie Post and Stacia Brown. It is brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM with financial support from the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation and listeners like you. Production assistance was provided by Marsha Jews. Our theme music was produced by Mark Gunnery of the Center for Emerging Media. For photos related to Morgan State University and the people you just heard talking about it, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. You can find and listen to the Rise of Charm City as a podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. 